God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Salah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. That is Psalm 82, which along with Psalm 81 are the psalms appointed for today, Wednesday, November the 9th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thank you for being along today. That psalm is changing the way that I understand a whole lot of Scripture. Um, I've, I've mentioned this guy multiple times. His name is Michael Heiser. And so what you see in that psalm is, is a call for God to judge the, quote, gods. It's the same word, but it's plural rather than singular. And then he talks about the divine council and then says, you are gods. And Jesus quotes that, remember? Sons of the Most High, all of you, these are angels or other created heavenly beings. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince, and then calls for God to come and judge the earth and and be the ruler and inheritor of all the nations. Well, see if you can figure that out based on what you commonly believe and what you commonly hear in pulpits and what you heard me say probably for a very long period of time. It's a very interesting thing. It's about the divine council, and it goes back to Deuteronomy. Uh, 32, but it also goes back to Genesis 11 when the nations were split up and divided up. So anyway, here we are today. We are continuing our look at the book of Joel in chapter 2, verses 12 to 19, Luke's gospel, 15, chapter 15, verses 1 to 10, and the book of the Revelation, chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. <clears throat> I'm going to encourage you to go read that psalm one more time, Psalm 82. Just look it up, read it, um, go in the ESV particularly and do it because it's a good translation. So anyway, just take a look at it. So now, the Lord is speaking to his people here in Joel. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Fasting, weeping, mourning. Sounds like the Babylonians in Jonah. And rend your hearts and not your garments. In other words, I don't care what you do to your clothing, you know, you might do that without returning to me with your whole heart. And the, remember, the um, the Babylonians did. They, they rent their garments and all that. They did all the right things outwardly. But what they wanted was to maintain their stronghold. They, they didn't want God to judge them. He ultimately would, but they didn't want God to judge them. Here, what God's encouraging his people to do is to do the same kind of mourning, but return to him with all your heart. Not, not so that you can keep your place, but that so, so that you can have that relationship with God restored. And he says, not your garments, your hearts is what I want here. In, in the Anglican world, we, we talk about sacraments a fair bit. Um, we, we talk about the definition of a sacrament, and it comes from St. Augustine, actually, and it's an outward and visible sign of an inward and a spiritual grace. So the sacrament of communion, for instance, is, is bread and wine. And, and then what it, what it signifies is something that happens inwardly, 
but, but the accidents, or what it's called, are the bread and the wine. What they affect or celebrate is what happens on the inside once you receive those things. It's still bread and wine, but, but we, we believe that change happens, that, that the Holy Spirit accompanies the proper taking of those things, not just to eat bread and wine, but no, in a certain way in communion with others. And so that's what God's saying is, is that I don't want you to rend your garments unless that's an outward sign of an inward and visible uh, and invisible grace. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. That's Exodus 34, verses 6 to 8, where God says that's what his character is. And it's a good thing and a wise thing to always remember that. To remember God's character is to remember that we can return to him, and because of uh, he has offered that to us, he is um, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. What we know then is God's character is such that when we turn back to him, then he will avert that disaster from us and restore our relationship. But it's got to be a movement of the heart, not just a bunch of activity. Who knows whether he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. And and so what Joel is saying is is that, that we have a chance here. We have an opportunity. We've been given a warning in this locust plague. We've been given an opportunity to turn back to the Lord. Maybe it'll stop right there if we turn back to him. The important thing is turning back to him. Again, not a bunch of activity, but actually turning our hearts to him. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride, her chamber, between the vestibule and the altar. And, and, and what that means is, is the, bride, the bridegroom leaving his, bri- his room. It's the room that he's building on his parents' house to house his new bride. And, and the bride stays in her chamber until this is ready. And so remember, we've talked about this a couple of times when Jesus says, well, yesterday, I think it was, when he was talking about the, um, the banquet that was prepared, and, and then people said, hey, I can't come because of this, this, and this, I have a new wife, and all that kind of stuff. So that's what he's saying is, leave everything behind. Br- take a break from everything. Nothing is as important as this, and come on. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among their peoples, Where is their God? And this is exactly the same thing that, that Moses approached God about when God was going to kill him in the wilderness. He says, Look, the Egyptians are going to see that. They're going to hear about this, and then they're just going to say, See, God just wanted to kill him. And here, that's exactly what he said. Where's their God? If they're being destroyed, where is their God? So that's his appeal to the Lord. It is don't it'll make you look bad. <laughs> then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. So because they did, because they turned to him, the Lord relented of the disaster and sent blessing among them. He didn't just relent of the disaster, he healed their land which is exactly what 2 Chronicles 7.14 says he will do if they'll turn to him with their whole heart. He will heal their land. Because remember, the land had been ravaged by the locusts, and there was nothing for anybody to eat. There was nothing for the livestock to eat. Now he says, I'm going to send you grain 
and wine and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I'll no longer make you a reproach among the nations. What a blessing. What a blessing it is. But the requirement is, give me your whole heart. Give me everything. Leave everything behind and make this right and do it now. In the gospel, Luke says tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him. They wouldn't have been allowed to draw near to hear other people. The Pharisees would have kept them at arm's length, at least. So they said, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Mm, Look at him. Look who he's hanging out with. Doesn't he know? Well, you know, as though you were somehow contaminated by hanging out with these people. But Jesus is not judging them the way they are. That's the problem. That's the problem they have with Jesus. They think he doesn't have any discernment. They think that he, he doesn't understand who these people are and, and that, that he'll be corrupted by them rather than the other way around in spite of the fact they see it all the time. They see somebody with some disease, some demon, some whatever, come to Jesus and he heals them. And instead of him contracting their defilement, they receive healing and wholeness. And they don't understand how that could be true whenever he allows these people to come near to hear the teaching. They, they think, oh, he'll be corrupted. Look at this. Look who he's hanging out with. He's hanging out with these terrible people. So he told them a parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Are there any righteous people who need no repentance? Yeah, there's one. One guy, Jesus. That's it. He's the only one. So here, Jesus says in a way that they should all easily understand if you if one of your sheep goes away, you'll go get it, won't you? Mm-hmm. And is it because of how much you love the sheep, or is it just simply because it's an economic thing? It doesn't make any real difference at the end of the day, but he's suggesting that, that everybody would do the same thing. Every single person that, that he hears that hears him say this, Jesus expects they would do exactly what the man in the parable does. Is that that they would they would go and find the one that was lost in order to bring it back. And then they would rejoice over the one that was lost, more so than over the 99 that never were lost. A huge truth in that, right? I mean, this is a gigantic truth in that. Um, We had a dog one time that got out and and went away, and we we couldn't find him. Didn't know where he went. He was gone for two weeks. I was going to the airport one morning, early in the morning, like 5.30, driving along, went went away that I didn't normally go. There were some dogs playing in somebody's front yard, and I look up, and one of them is my dog. I open the door. Wooster, come here. He comes bound into the car, jumps in the car. I take him home. He's filthy, absolutely filthy. After two weeks out running around, having his own life and having fun, I took him back home, took him upstairs, threw him into bed with Suzanne. He was filthy. She was thrilled to death. Filthy, 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 filthy. I mean, just nasty. But she was thrilled to death to have him back because he was lost and had been found. We had given him up for dead, had no expectation of ever finding him again. But we do that. You know, a child that goes astray. And comes back. We celebrate that one, just like, well, the father of the prodigal son did. So it's a, it's a story that everybody can relate to. And Jesus says, this, I'm going to make this as straightforward as I can for you. I'm trying to restore and rescue the sheep that are lost. 
These are Jews that he's talking about. These Pharisees, these tax collectors and sinners, they're Jews. And then he says, oh, or what woman? Uh, you don't like the parable about the man? Here you go. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses a coin, doesn't light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I've found the coin that I lost. Just so, I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You know, what a wonderful thing. What, what a great thing that is to, to think that, that heaven rejoices when a sinner repents. Do we? Or are we skeptical? You know, that's the problem. The problem is that the church, too often what we do as the church is we we do what Francis Chan talked about. He had this great illustration of standing on a balance beam that's about three inches off the floor, and it's pretty wide. And so he's standing on this balance beam, and he said, this is how most of us Christians live, and we live the safest possible lives. We hang out with only the people in our church, and and sometimes that is literally it. We don't hang around with Methodists and Baptists. We hang around with whatever we are. So we're going to keep ourselves in our safe little spaces. And we're not going to interact with the world in any way. We're going to send our kids only to Christian schools. And we're only going to do all these things. And he says, then we get to the end of life and we we leap off this three-inch balance beam, hit the floor, throw our hands in the air, and expect God to applaud. Is is that the story of Jesus' life? He left the safest place he'd ever been in his life. And every, every only thing that he'd ever known came down here to affiliate with us, took the risk of coming here. And he expects us to do the same. He expects us to do the same, and yet we don't. We live in these little enclaves that we create for ourselves so that we never have to be out around those sinners. And I'm not sure he's all that pleased with that, and our witness is compromised when we do that. It's absolutely compromised, and we don't get to rejoice with heaven, and the rejoicing in heaven is muted because we're not actually being salt and light. In the Revelation passage, remember, so what we've already seen is judgment on the city, then I saw heaven open to behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Well, there's only one of those. That's Jesus. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. In righteousness, he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. So now go back to that psalm that I read for you at the very beginning. So he's coming to make war. And who is he coming to make war on? Is he coming to make war on, on a people of earth? Well, only to the extent that we're at war with him. But, but he's coming to, to take over all the kingdoms of the earth. But he's not taking them away just from earthly kings, because they're not the ones ultimately who are in charge, because those people, those earthly kings, they come and go. The, the true rulers of those nations are heavenly beings. And they oversee this. And that is who he's coming to make war with. So the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Man, that just makes me shiver, almost makes me want to weep. I mean, it literally, I, I saw it and thought, I got I, I can't. That's a powerful, this, this, that imagery is so powerful. And here comes the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God. 
to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. In other words, there's going to be a great slaughter here. And he's calling the birds to come and eat the carrion at the end of this slaughter. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown into alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from his, from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So what is this sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse? It's the sword of the spirit. It's the word of God. And so all things are brought into being by the word of God. And then all things are finally judged and ended by the word of God. Brothers and sisters, we have to be in the word of God. I want to. I, I, I don't want anybody that I know, anybody that I love, to be one of those people. The birds eat their flesh. I don't want anybody I know to be that. Do I really, though, or am I just saying that? Have I been diligent enough? Am, am I bold enough to share the Word of God, to share the truth of God with those people around me? Do I care enough about them to share the truth, or am I too worried about being rejected? Well, at the end of the day, I don't want to hang my head and say, if I had only, I don't want to be that guy. I really don't. But I have to acknowledge that I don't have the passion every single day of my life for that one that's gotten away. But I don't want to lose those people. And I, I don't want my friends to say, if John had only told me. If John had only shown me that truth, let's not be that people. Let's not be those people at all. Let's be honest. Let's be honest about our hypocrisy. Let's be honest about our own failings. And then let's come before the Lord and allow him to restore us, clean us up, fill us with his spirit, send us out to do the work that he's given us to do. Let's be like the people.